Welcome, and thank you for listening to Second Chance Cinema with MC and Spro, a podcast that takes a second look at films that went and stayed under the radar for any number of silly reasons. Before we begin our show, just a warning that our hosts do not censor their curse words and tend to spoil movies' endings. So if you haven't seen today's film, considering pausing this episode, watching it, and tuning in later. As always, MC and Spro, two well-mannered, handsome, wonderful boys, appreciate all their listeners and look forward to debating the greatness of this hidden cinema gem. I'm MC's mom, and I have not been compensated for this introduction. Enjoy the show. Carly? Joshua? Can you hear me? Mom? Yes, it's Mommy. Mommy's here. Is your sister with you? Yeah, Mom, I'm here. Oh, thank God. Are you two all right? Mom? I stole the money from your purse. I'm so sorry. Riley, she just said she needed it and then her... It's okay, honey. I understand you must have had a very good reason. That's not what this is about. Now I want you to unbolt the door and I want you and your brother to come out of that basement. Do you understand? No, Mom, we're not coming out, okay? You have to leave. You, you need to leave the house, you and Dad. Your motherfucking mother should open the door. Motherfuckers! You're going to open this motherfucking door! Imagine you're a parent, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, an incredibly convenient plot device inspires you to murder your children. What would you do? That is the question that the movie Mom and Dad, starring Nicolas Cage, Selma Blair, and in a fantastic cameo, Lance Hendrickson, sought to answer in the most absurd, ridiculous, dark comedy style, probably in a movie that I've seen in the last at least five years. Welcome to Second Chance Cinema. I am one of your hosts, MC, and I'm joined always by my dear friend and co-host, Spro. Spro, how are you? I am good, and I'm always happy to be here with you, MC. That warms my heart, man. More so than ever, our tagline is appropriate for this movie, and that tagline is, there's a lot to unpack here. This movie, I, I did not know of until you recommended it, so my first question before we get into the poetry and the trailer and stuff why? And that's a great question. This movie, one, I am always a fan of horror movies, but this is also a horror movie that has a very simple concept. You tell a parent the concept and it's actually the last lines of the movie of like, yeah, you know, like I really love my kids. But sometimes you just kind of want to kill them. That saying has been around at least since I was a kid, been probably way before that, since like parenting existed and nobody made a movie about it. So the fact that it was such a simple idea, you know, you give that idea to the director and writer of the Crank movies mm -hmm. and he pulls it off with an adrenaline pace and really what got me to watch the movie is I've well it's hard to say like it's not that I've, 
I've been a fan of Nicolas Cage because he has gone off the deep end and he makes some pretty wretched movies recently. Mm-hmm. But this trailer has it saying that it's Nicolas Cage at his Nicolas Cageiest, and that attracted me to at least view the movie. And then when I watch the movie, it's really well done and it's a fast paced thrill ride with that simple concept. And it's just kind of, it's a different kind of horror movie than what we're getting nowadays. So, and then when we were sitting down in Applebee's, which our listeners by now know that's where this whole thing transpired from, we were putting down a lot of like 80s, 90s, 2000 movies. And I was like, what's a recent movie that nobody's ever heard of that I want to pitch? And this was 2018. You know, this was super recent. And I would doubt that many of our listeners, even though it's streaming for free on Hulu, know about Mom and Dad. So, and that's a good point. I was I was trying to sort of half-ass research and see if this is the most recent movie we've done. And it seems like it is, right? Oh, yeah. So... First thing, the Nicolas Cage quote, Nicolas Cage at his most Nicolas Cageiest is not false advertising. Nicolas Cage, and I think, I feel like interviews I've read with him, I feel like he would agree that he's almost become a parody of himself. Not necessarily in a negative way, just in that way where he wants to serve the audience. I mean, it's it's not as if he's in the Leaving Las Vegas days where he's attempting elite levels of drama. It's not where he's in the, the rock and the face-off days where he's attempting to transition into a serious action hero. This is just him being batshit crazy. It's it's a skill that he possesses. Mm-hmm. And I don't know necessarily, like I know that he's had money troubles and that's what people were saying. Like he was just grabbing any project that he can. The other thing about Nicolas Cage is he sells really well overseas. And there's a thing with movies that I've been privy to is that if you attach certain actors to your projects, you can immediately start collecting international sales. Bruce Willis is the exact same way. As soon as you attach Bruce Willis to a movie, that movie is going to make at least $6 million overseas. So you can kind of like bank that. So if you make a movie for $2 million, attach Bruce Willis, you get six already off the bat. So Nicolas Cage is the exact same way in over in the Asian countries. So that's where he's like, he's just picking up movies left and right because they're going to sell overseas. And while we're over here being like, what happened to what happened to Con Air, Nick Cage? And right, Face I, I forgot Con Air. God, somebody needs to flagellate me with a cat and nine tails for forgetting Con Air. That's, that's shame on me. And to be fair and sort of unbiased, like if you're an actor, don't you want to be in movies? I think the criticism of Nicolas Cage sometimes comes in the form of like, God, he's in everything. I mean, they even did a parody sketch on Saturday Night Live where he played himself and Andy Samberg also played himself during the weekend update. And the reason there were two of them was because he cloned himself so he could be in every movie. And I think that that's a joke that, you know, clearly he made it as an expense. But my question is, like, if you're an actor, don't want to be in all these movies? Like, don't you want to be acting in as many movies as you can? Isn't that kind of the job? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it has hurt his reputation at all, considering the fact that when he came out with as one of the voices of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, people were excited that Nick Cage was voicing that. You know, it's not like Mm -hmm. disparaged his own name. We all still like Nick Cage. And that's why when the trailer said it's Nick Cage as Nick Cageist, I was like, sign me up. 
I will say this, and we'll get into why, but this is a movie that I don't know, at least not right away, that I'll be eager to watch again, but it's a movie that makes me want to check out some of the other under-the-radar Nicolas Cage movies. Like, I know there's one where he's like a pilot, and I think it's kind of like the Langoliers where like they run into turbulence and then they end up in purgatory or something weird like that. They're all movies like that, and this movie made me want to experience some of those, if only to see the status of his hairline. <laughs> I feel like there's got to be somebody out there that did a deep dive that is like ranking Nick Cage's under the radar films of the last 20 years. I feel like I've actually read that article recently. It must have been like Vulture or something. I'll ha- I don't know. Maybe we can put a link to it. But before we get too deep, I mean, let's run with our tradition of playing the trailer. When we play the trailer, I'm going to spin the wheel of poetry. Whatever it lands on, we are going to do our best to come up with a, a poem. Well, I'll read them off. The options are haiku, song parody, ABAB poem, limerick, or toast slash roast worthy of this movie and Nicolas Cage at his Nicolas Cage. So let's spin the wheel first. Here we go. We landed on ABAB. So this is actually a pretty simple structure. The first and the third lines have to rhyme and the second and the fourth lines have to rhyme. So Spro's going to play the trailer and then he and I are going to come back with some literary gold about Nicolas Cage and mom and dad. Very nice. Can I go to a movie with Riley tonight? With Riley? Your grandparents are coming for dinner tonight, remember? Awesome. Grandpa telling his disgusting Vietnam stories. Take my advice. Don't ever have kids. Everything just revolves around you, doesn't it? Yeah, whatever. (laughs) What is the rush today? It's like we're waiting for a buffet. What's going on? Is that McKenna's mom? Multiple reports are now coming in of parents murdering their own children. Listen to me. We have to get out of the house before mom and dad come home. an intriguing trailer for me and I watched it after I watched the movie because and I feel that trailer honestly did a disservice to the movie because like you said before this is kind of a movie that struggles with what it wants to be like is it a horror movie is it a comedy is it playing more one than the other but as we get into it I think we'll agree that that's kind of the charm and that's kind of the appeal of you know essentially what the movie ends up being so Mm -hmm. um 
Okay, we've got our ABAB poems. Do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? I'll go first. All right, go for it. This this was actually kind of hard for me, even though it seems like it would be like one of the simplest ones. The first line, no surprise. I put Nick Cage at his Nicholas Cageist with Selma Blair stealing scenes. Throw in dark humor at its angriest. Romero, Rodriguez, rock and roll shirts, and acid wash jeans. Very nice. That was very verbose. Mine's a little simpler. Mine is static on the TV makes parents want to kill their kids when they are sleeping with guns and saws and drills. (laughs) That about covers it. To let the listeners know, in order to discuss this movie, and it's not because I have a weak stomach or anything. I just felt like I'd be in a better state of mind. I took a Valium before I signed on here, and I'm also drinking a Sam Adams. So Let's go over the basic premise first. It's a suburban home, Selma Blair and Nicolas Cage, two kids, older daughter who's a typical tween attitude, bratty, steals money from the wallets, all that, all those cliches. Um, The son is sort of, you know, a troublemaker, not of the ilk of like Dennis the Menace, but more like he's kind of leaving toys around. But it's clear that throughout the movie, he and his dad especially have like a good relationship, like a good jokey relationship. All of a sudden, one day while the daughter is at school, and I guess the kid, the boy was too young to be in school, which I didn't quite pick up on that. He seemed like he was at least like third or fourth grade age, but for some reason he was at home. But the daughter's at school. There's some commotion outside police cars. They see all these parents lining up at the entrance as if they're there to pick up their kids from school, but the parents all look really zoned out and kind of dead-eyed, and then school lets out, and it's just anarchy. Do you see your mom? Yeah, right. If Isis dropped the bomb on this place, she'd be so stoked. You have scenes of like mothers pulling their kids over the gate, just beating them to death. You have shots of cops like pepper spraying these mothers and trying to restore order. The catalyst for all this just seems to be some innocuous TV static, which on one hand, I really liked. I mean, it was one of those things where it reminded me of obviously Bird Box, where there's really like no explanation. You're left up to your own imagination to figure out what it is. There was another movie called Cell with John Cusack and I think Samuel L. Jackson. If it wasn't Samuel L. Jackson, I think that's a fair guess because his his scorecard for movies is up there with Nicolas Cage. Essentially, it's this almost like a MacGuffin type plot device that just turns people crazy. It's not as literal as like a zombie bite. It's just this thing that happens, this very esoteric nebulous thing that happens and all of a sudden a specific group of people turn crazy. And that's what happened here. The static came on the TVs and anyone who was exposed to it who was a parent immediately wanted to kill their child. The first instance we see or we don't see but is inferred is the family's housekeeper, a Chinese woman with a daughter who I guess she brings over to their house, which again was something I didn't really, I don't know if that's normal, but her daughter, younger girl was over at the house while she was doing work. And the boy, the son stumbles upon this housekeeper. It's implied that she's beating her to death with like an oyster mallet or something weird like that. And then that causes him to run up into the bedroom, hide under the bed, even though he's in no danger because he's not her kid. And then from there, everything just sort of snowballs. 
the device of the TV static I thought was interesting because I feel it's equal parts clever and incredibly lazy. It's in a multitude of movies. Like there's uh, there's even a movie called The Signal, which is pretty much the same thing, except in The Signal, when the TV goes to static, you just want to kill the person that's nearest to you. It's, it doesn't have anything to do with, with, you know, being a parent. I don't even know if it's real science or pseudoscience, but they say Dr. Oz has this little cameo in the movie. Oh, God. And- oh, my God. I <laughs> Sorry to interject, but fuck Dr. Oz. What a piece of shit, like on the level directly below Dr. Phil. I I don't know if you remember like when when the the COVID situation happened. Do you remember the quotes that he said about reopening schools? He essentially said, and I think he went and backpedaled like it was taken out of context, but he was like, yeah, what's a few hundred kids if we're able to reopen schools? Like something to that extent. Just what a total piece of shit. I was waiting and hoping with bated breath that he would just get like a drill through his face or something but apparently his parents didn't sign on for the movie so it didn't fit with the plot but wrapping that up fuck that guy sorry go yeah on. well it's a weird thing that we do in this country that like when somebody is disproven we we just kind of ignore it or i read an article and i saw like an expose on dr oz where all the the products that he pitches on his show are just are paid oh. for advertisements God, he yeah, doesn't know if they course. work or not so like when that comes out like that should immediately take him off the air but for some reason we don't but in the same instance so that's why i don't understand i don't know if it's science or it's a paid for advertisement of the fact that 50 percent or 60 percent of pig mothers will kill their piglets is what he says in the movie oh, and that's, that's kind right. of worth and that's kind of like the science that they give out here's the quote in a british medical journal called the lancet he argued quote the opening of schools may only cost us 2% to 3% in terms of mortality. Any life is a life lost. But to get every child back into a school where they are safely being educated, being fed, and making the most out of their lives, that might be a trade-off some folks would consider. I wish you could see the anger in my face right now. Like, just seeing his smug, douchey mug right on my computer as I'm reading these quotes. Putting him in that movie, I almost wonder if that was like bait for people to just get angry and get amped up and get ready for the rest of the adrenaline in this movie. I'm sure many viewers are unfamiliar with the phenomenon known as savaging. It's actually somewhat common in the animal kingdom. For instance, in the domestic pig population, as anyone involved in raising livestock will tell you. you're talking about pigs? There are children dying, and you're talking about pigs. Well, yes. In fact, around 50% of the piglet fatality seen is due to the mother attacking or crushing the newborn pre-weaned babies. And no one can say exactly why they do it. Again, we have to emphasize, we have no The thing that you were saying about the piglets and there are absolutely instances in the animal kingdom where that's a reality. I know that hippos are notorious for doing that. I don't necessarily know about piglets and pigs, but I know that monkeys and some, you know, higher primates are guilty of that behavior, if you can even call it guilty. But what they did in that movie, that throwaway line that reminded me so much of the movie The Happening, which, okay, so like I think in The Happening, there was a throwaway line where Mark Wahlberg's talking to his science class and he says the first sort of like hint of an explanation is like, maybe it's just something we'll never understand. Maybe it's something that science can't prove. Look, I don't know if you guys have heard about this article in the New York Times about honeybees vanishing. Well, apparently honeybees are disappearing all over the country. Tens of millions of them just disappearing. There's no bodies, no sign of them. They're just mysteriously gone. It's scary, huh? 
All right, let's hear some theories about why this might be happening. Laura. Disease? Right. Could be a virus or infection. That's all over the country. It's a coordinated event in 24 states. A little tricky. Pollution? Could be. I mean, we're just pumping so much junk into the environment, they're just keeling over. But there are no bodies. Keep guessing. Dylan. Global warming. Temperature goes up a fraction of a degree, makes them disoriented. Maybe. Jake? An act of nature and will never fully understand it. Nice answer, Jake. He's right. I mean, science will come up with some reason to put in the books. But in the end, it'll be just a theory. I mean, we will fail to acknowledge that there are forces at work beyond our understanding. To be a good scientist, you must have a respectful awe for the laws of nature. And then later in the movie, completely out of nowhere, one of the characters is like, you know, plants can emit hormones that contribute to their survival. Maybe they're trying to make us kill each other. And it felt like such just a disconnect. Like you can only suspend your disbelief so far. And I feel like that instance in the happening, that could go either way. But I felt like this movie, it was a disservice to have not only Dr. Oz because he's a piece of shit, but that dialogue, it demystified part of the movie for me like it tried to set up a rational explanation for a movie that did not need a rational explanation but this is also 2018 so that's why i was like i don't know if you're necessarily supposed to believe dr oz or you're just thinking like this is the expert pontificating on cnn or fox news or whatever those infotainment ridiculous channels are and throwing out there like this is probably what's going on all right but isn't it a fact that we still have no real idea what is causing this be a natural phenomenon but let's just postulate someone wants to wipe us out so they create a biological weapon or a neurotoxin which attacks the very hardwired human impulse which is to protect our young any parent would rush out in front of a speeding car or an oncoming train or even a wild animal to save their child but if you could take that natural human impulse and reverse it you wouldn't have to wipe us out because at that point we ourselves would be wiping out our own future like that might have been my least favorite part of the movie except for the scene that i had to fast forward so maybe you can talk about that scene because i i was not equipped to deal with that scene the other movie that i just want to throw out that was recent it was a i think it was timothy oliphant but the crazies Mm -hmm. which had a really good trailer to it and that movie let me down i remember seeing that so like the happening sucked the crazies was a letdown the signal is actually another kind of like under the radar horror movie i think it was low budget that was pretty good the thing about all those movies the reviews will mention romero and dawn of the dead and the zombies movies that we've grown so accustomed to the thing i I love about mom and dad is that if it's not your parents, you don't have to worry about them. There are people killing people all over this movie, but as long as it's not your parents, they're just walking around with blood covered all over. The horror is around you. There's a guy that comes out to get, I think his paper and he's got a sledgehammer over his shoulder and he's just covered in blood. And you know that he just killed his children and he just smiles at them and walks away. And you're like, good God, it's crazy. It's a new thing about this horror movie. The one scene that on the second viewing was actually really quick, but on the first viewing, I felt it was interminably long. And I told you that I watched it through my eyebrows as I stuck my face in the popcorn. Motherfucker, I can't do this. I can't. Dan, 
again. I just might be a little more than you signed up for. This thing is fucked up. Holy fucking shit, how have you done this twice? You're inhuman. Easy there, let's talk you more breathing. We're almost there. 80% dilated, she's good to go, doctor. Hey, I know it oh, hurts. I know, I know this hurts, mama. But trust me, the second you see that beautiful baby and hear that voice, everything will just disappear. Some kind of magic, okay? Trust me, it will go away. It's probably just the chucks kicking in. No, no, Jeannie, it's something else. It's, it's love kicking in, okay? So just let it come. And push. <laughs> and look at that beautiful girl. <laughs> They're strong boys. So now the movie is set up. You know exactly what's going on. Parents want to kill their kids if, if the TV turns to static and they get a hold of the signal. And Selma Blair is in a delivery room with this woman and they birth the baby and you're like, oh God. <laughs> That woman just became a mother. And then Roxette's uh, Must Have Been Love starts playing, which the music in this movie is fantastic. I would put it like Very top true. 10 horror movies of like, did you see It Follows? It Follows. I don't remember that one, no. It's a cult classic now. They put 80s music in. And I feel like this is kind of like the same way where the music is just kind of, it's perfectly placed wherever it is. And so they play Roxette's Must Have Been Love. And you're screaming in your own mind, like, do not give that mother the newborn baby and they do they're like does mother want to hold the baby because nobody knows really what's going on in the outside and they do and the mother just slowly i mean i don't even want to ruin for the audience if they want to see it But they have to wrench this baby away from the mother. You got the doctor about to stab her with a scalpel. You have Selma Blair rip the baby from the arms and like fly across the room, like everything going on with this newborn baby. And this is one of the reasons why I say that I love Selma Blair in this movie is because her she plays it pretty straight until she goes crazy and her emotions are really good. Her eyes are running with tears. She is so good in this movie. Her filmography is not other than Hellboy. I don't know. And I guess Legally Blonde. I don't know that I've seen her in a lot. But in this movie, you're right. She's almost like the last hope, because from what I remember, she's like among the last people, if not the last person to get affected by the signal. And so she's the one who, through her, the mechanism of the signal is kind of explored where she's just as baffled as as the audience is. It's not like they have figured it out to where they can tell her, be like, oh, don't watch this TV show because there's a signal in it or whatever. You see her transformation more gradually, and that made her... She was probably my favorite character in the movie. I, I loved Nicolas Cage, like, doing his shit, but sh her character was very, very... It was a very slow burn, and then once you got there, it was just an explosion. Mm-hmm. 
where I first remember her is I went to see Cruel Intentions for the Ryan Felipe and Reese Witherspoon and Sarah Michelle Gellar. Like I went to see that movie for them. And to me, Selma Blair stole the show on that one. And then she was also in a very good all-female comedy, which was the sweetest thing with Christina Applegate. Didn't see that one. They set her character up really well because she's the one who's... Nicolas Cage is sort of just... He exists in the home, then he goes to work, and that's basically it. But she tries to cultivate a relationship with her daughter. She even, like... I mean, she bears her soul. She's like, you know, I I don't know why we can't talk, and and you always say whatever, and, you know, it's just not... It's not what it used to be, and it makes me really sad. Like, she was very vulnerable in the beginning of that movie. So you almost feel for her when her daughter gives her lip, her daughter steals from her, her daughter's just acting like a, not even a typical tween, just kind of like a bitch. I, I want to trust you, Carly, really, I do. Your dad and I both do, but you don't make it easy on us when you shut us out. Do you mind not Facebooking when we're driving together? It's really the only time we have, just the two of us. Facebooking. You know what I mean. Yeah, whatever. You know, I really, really hate when you say that. Amazing. Everything just revolves around you, doesn't it? Doesn't everyone's world revolve around themselves? Who else should it revolve around? Well, you're part of a family. Carly, and that means that you love each other even when you can't stand each other, and that you give a shit even when you don't really give a shit. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Take your Aunt Jeannie, for instance. I mean, you could have a new cousin today. That is a big deal. And all you can think about is. No, I don't even know what you're thinking about because you don't tell me anymore. We used to be best friends, remember? Okay, well, that's not the case anymore, Mom. I have other friends. Right. See, it's just for me, you and Josh are everything. So you you don't get to just shut me out. It's not fair. God, it's not my fault you have no life. It certainly doesn't justify homicide, but that dynamic was the one that made the plot a minute amount of rational thinking behind it. I feel like like that was the that was the relationship. And those were the the interactions where I was like, yeah, this is pretty fucking frustrating. The other thing that I really like about the movie is that there are in every horror movie and every good horror movie, there is social commentary. And lately we've gotten a lot of over the head social commentary where in this one, they kind of just point out like there's a lot of cultural divides between generations, you know, like there's the Gen Xers, the Gen Zers, the millennials, the baby boomers, they're all represented in this movie and they all espouse the same things. You know, when uh, Lance Hendricks, when he comes in, I was in the war and you know, it's just, it's everything that we have heard from our grandparents to our parents, to us, you know, we reopened the school recently with our summer camp 
camp. And I just had like 30 minute meeting with the teachers where they're talking about how the kids just are always on their phone and kids are now watching other people play video games for four hours and then we'll play the video games themselves for four hours. And it's just, yeah, no. And people bitched about us (laughs) back in the day when we were just getting into our Nintendo systems and Mario and playing Rampage to miss church. God forbid we played Mortal Kombat and, you know, learned about video game violence and stuff like that. I mean, it's funny. I I don't know if you remember that. I think it was like a week or two ago, that couple, I think in like, I don't know, in Mississippi or something that came out of their house. The guy had AR-15 and the lady had a pistol and they were like all, oh, these protesters are on our lawn and we need to defend ourselves and blah, blah, blah. Did you see that? I saw like headlines. I don't really follow the news anymore. Well, that's fair. So basically that's what it was. And I read a caption that said something like Fox News turned our parents into what they thought Mortal Kombat would turn us into. And you're exactly right. There's, you know, even if it's only brief, there's a cross section of different generations here. And that's also explored through, I think, what was my favorite scene in the movie. And I might actually get a little emotional here, but my favorite scene in the movie, and I thought it was brilliantly done. This was maybe right before Nicolas Cage and Selma Blair go crazy. Nicolas Cage buys a pool table and he He's setting it up in the basement and he's wearing, contrary to his work attire, he's wearing jeans and a Misfits t-shirt and he's just, you know, like this is him. This is him underneath the costume of what he has to wear every day. And he sets up the pool table, builds it himself, levels it, puts in the work, you know, the whatever, blood, sweat and tears. Selma Blair comes downstairs and she's she's not accusatory. She's just, where did this come from? Like, why? How did I miss this? And, and you know, it, it turns into this big argument where he ends up blowing his top, destroying the pool table with the sledgehammer while he sings the hokey pokey, which I have another story about that later. But then what happens is he's very emotional. He's, I think, borderline in tears. He's exhausts himself to the point where he sits down on a up against the basement pillar and then she comes to join him and they both sit there and they both kind of confess to each other this feeling of just I can't think of a better word than impotence as far as comparing themselves in the present day to who they used to be and more importantly to what they thought they could become. There were so many good lines. The dialogue in that scene was, you know, he said, you remember when I was going to grab life by the balls? I was Brent. You were Kendall. We were going to we were going to tear apart the world no matter what they said. And speaking as someone approaching 40 unemployed and and sort of just really in a bunch of shitty holding patterns for some reason not for some reason for all the reasons i just mentioned that scene i felt really really captured what it feels like to have a complete loss of control of your own life not a big fan of machine part sales either Try and hit quarters down there, be a big man. Not exactly what I had in mind as a young dude, you know. Bright future, everything in the world to look forward to. I mean, I was gonna grab the world by the balls and squeeze, boy! God damn it, I remember that kid I used to be like, it was four fucking minutes ago. My feet barely touched the ground back then. My kill ratio was nine out of 10, it was 100% sex. And that guy, in a million years could never have pictured this tired motherfucker he turned out to be. Flat on his ass, fat, bald, cottage cheese, fucking ass, blue bonnet, buttered waistline with hair coming out of my ears, my nose. My salary went from $145,000 to $45,000. 
Yeah, building a fucking man cave, that's right. You're right! I mean, does any of this make any sense to you at all? Of course it does. I mean, it's not that as a woman, you don't have career dreams, relationship dreams. I did. I had all that. There's this bigger thing. All your life, you know it's coming. And there's this mix of anxiety and secret excitement and terror. Because you know that one day, inevitably, you'll create this life. The hugeness of it, the importance of it. Everything is building to that moment. And then it happens. And no matter what you thought it would be, it's not like that. I mean, it's intense. It's fucking batshit, but it's not. It doesn't. Anyways, it is what it is. Just something that happens and then it's that's over yeah i know this is the way things are supposed to be i know we're doing it right it's just hard to get my head around you know i mean i used to be brant and you used to be kendall and now we're just mom and dad I thought that was a really, really poignant scene. And it showed that that even though their marriage was not on the rocks necessarily, but it certainly wasn't passionate. It certainly wasn't as loving as it maybe once was. Certainly not as when they were teenagers or in college or whenever all those flashbacks happened. But they had that in common. And they both sort of like they both sort of reconciled with each other and they were vulnerable. And it was like a very weirdly human twist in this otherwise just batshit movie. Absolutely. And I feel like when we're talking about the writer director, Brian Taylor, I don't think his name is really well known. When you go to his Wikipedia, he says it's half the duo of Mark Neveldine and Neveldine and Taylor. This is kind of his solo project. And so will this go down in the annals of history? Is it annals or annals? It's definitely annals, but I'm glad you said the other one. (laughs) It's not going to be a Criterion collection piece, but he does everything with purpose and very well in this movie even where he puts the flashbacks because he'll put the flashbacks at poignant times even when like when Nick Cage is about to take out his son they go right to a flashback where Nick Cage and his son are sitting there eating popsicles and he's trying to espouse to his son some fatherly wisdom I'm sorry I messed up dad hey like father like son right But if you ever touch that car again, I'll fucking kill you. (laughs) 
it's a weird kind of emotional roller coaster that you take in the movie because you're kind of like on the edge of your seat if he is going to get his son because there are people that get injured, get hit, die in this movie that you're like, wow, I, I really can't believe that they did that. You never know who's going to win by the end of it. And then they they take you right to like a sweet memory moment of the film. And that's the same exact way with the, with the pool table. With the pool table, I feel like that's almost like a personal touch of the director that I would say almost everybody goes through. I know that, you know, when I was going through my shitty time of life, I was like, what did I do everything for? <laughs> like, right, yeah. where I wanted to be. And I had so many hopes and dreams, you know, from the age of 12, I was going to be the youngest person to ever sell a screenplay didn't happen all the way until like, you know, you're 30 and living in LA and you think the world is going to happen. And then you're almost like you said, you're almost 40 and you're kind of like, well, shit, not only am I not where I'm supposed to be, but do I have enough time to get where I want to go? The flashbacks were brilliant because they created and they generated sympathy for what should be a set of the most unsympathetic characters in cinema. They want to murder their children. And yet you see these moments between them to where you're almost like, it's not their fault. It's the signal's fault. They're good parents. Like, and and I don't mean that they're ideal parents. I mean, like, there's obviously love in that family. And amidst the chaos of this, just like, I think it's called filicide when you try to kill your family. Amidst all that chaos, there's still, a, the, the director still found ways to evoke sympathy and evoke moments of understanding. And it was interesting because from what I remember in the, like the first 10 minutes of the movie, there's a flashback of Nicolas Cage, you know, he he reminisces about and it's like, oh, man, this is this is awesome. This is back when I was awesome. And it's it's when he's looking at his Trans Am in the, in the garage. And it's like mm-hmm. right there, it presents itself as more of just like a harmless reminiscence. But then when it gets later into the movie and shit starts to hit the fan, it's really exactly what we were just talking about. It's like, where did my life go? Where did my dreams go? Where did my you know, where did my potential go? And in this movie, the blame for that both blatantly and uh, subtly is put on the kids. They they say without saying, because we had a family, because we have kids, we're not these people that we were anymore. I obviously no justification for homicide, but that scene and that device that the director uses just kind of makes you like, it's a thinking part of a movie that probably shouldn't have many thinking parts. Right. It's weird because the second viewing, I was like, oh, and you asked me, you're like, does the dog die in mom and dad and i was like "Mm, i don't remember a dog i was like but i do remember a lot of children and then on the rewatch you never see a child die you see a mom tackle their kids and then you see it's almost like hitchcock in the shower scene you see the car keys between her fingers go in the air they come down they go back in the air and there's blood on them and you go oh i just watched a kid get murdered when you actually don't so like that we're we're talking a lot about kids dying and there's a lot of kids being attacked and if if that triggers you absolutely stay away from this movie and I totally understand that but there are scenes in it that you could tell that Brian Taylor is a good director you could tell that he has done his work and the scene that I kind of want to point out that we can't you know put a sound bite of is just Selma Blair is putting duct tape on the door and the girl her daughter is on the other side of it and her daughter is realizing that she's putting duct tape on the door so she starts poking her finger through the hole to Uh feel the duct tape on the other side and Selma Blair just stares at the duct tape getting like pushed through and so she picks up her knife Uh and is about to stab through like and you're just kind of like cringing 
cringing to yourself like, oh my gosh, is she going to really like splice her finger in two? You know, I'm not going to ruin it, but it's just there are those scenes through this high octane, high adrenaline rush horror movie of Nick Cage screaming his ass off and running around the house. And then there are the scenes that are just completely slowed down and give you that same horror rush that you want of like, ooh, what's going to happen next? It's a fun film that like the budget of it was $7 million. Do you know what the box office is? Did you see that? I don't remember it. No. So with a budget of seven, and this is why, because the critics actually like this movie, but nobody saw it because on a $7 million budget, this film only made a hundred and sixty nine thousand dollars wow hundred and sixty nine thousand two hundred and nine dollars was it a wide release or was it a limited release or what you know i do my research as i always do there's not a whole lot on the interwebs about the making of this movie it was kind of like it just seemed like they made it and then they walked away from it but even though nicholas cage said it was his favorite film that he's done in the past 10 years this made John Waters, you know, like the director. Oh, yeah, of- yeah, yeah. I did read that. It was like his fourth favorite film of the that year or something like that. Of 2018. And his first. And then, I, of course, when they say that's my fourth favorite, I go, what was your first favorite? And he picked American Animals, which was also a good film. One thing that I thought was remarkably accurate in this movie was when and this is something that I feel like I've only learned to appreciate as a homeowner and, and maybe you too. But when she uses the Sawzall on the door and just like can't can't get it to stay steady and it just jumps all over the place like i know i have one of those i've had one of those for years and that happens every single fucking time so i thought that that like that tiny detail whether it was intentional or not that made me chuckle but what i was going to say was i read this interview with nicholas cage where he was talking about this movie and somehow he digressed into a story about kindergarten and he said I, I'm I'm resisting temptation to do it in a Nicolas Cage voice, but here we go. He's like, I remember. Oh, it was the inspiration for the hokey pokey scene because that was ad lib. That was ad lib. So he's beating. Oh, really? That's what I read. Yeah, he's he's beating the shit out of his pool table with a sledgehammer, singing the hokey pokey, and he's like, Yeah, I remember in kindergarten when they would have us do the hokey pokey, and we were supposed to believe it was just like a fun game, but it was a way of separating the coordinated from the uncoordinated. And I really hated that. I really resented that. And I stuck up for my friends who were uncoordinated because I wasn't going to allow that. And reading that before I watched the movie was just like, all right, yeah, I need to see this scene. I also need to see the man who said that quote right now immediately because that's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever read. I I don't even know how to comprehend the place in a brain that that sort of quote would come from. And I think that's just the essence of Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage's brilliance really is just that that level of absurdity with that level of just this weird like transcendental Buddhist philosophy kind of thing. If there's nothing else you can call Nicolas Cage, it's unique. And that for me is is a very big selling point on any movie. Absolutely. The other thing to point out is, and for some reason, I've never done it before in my life, but it's always true that the film is written twice. It's written on the page as far as like the writer goes. And this was written by the director, Brian Taylor, but it's also written in the editing room. And the editors of this is Rose Core and Fernando Villana. And I just, I'm finding it interesting. I don't like to broad brush anybody or like any gender or race or anything like that, but I am really digging female editors 
And in an industry where, you know, we're trying to get a lot more diversity and a lot more inclusion, I really feel like the females in the editing world are just kicking ass. And this film is edited fantastically. The way that it's edited, the way that the sound comes in, you just, you can feel the emotions of these characters, which probably helps, uh, like you were saying earlier, 1% of you being like, yeah, I could see the justification here. <laughs> and, well, I was just, I don't know if I'd use the word justification, but you can at least, <laughs> yeah. but you can at least sympathize with the anger, with the frustration. Like we've all had those emotions, whether we have kids or relationships or not. Everyone who's going to watch this movie has felt anger, has felt frustration and has felt negative emotions directed specifically at another person. And this movie takes that premise and just blows it out of the water in the most ridiculous, uns settling way possible so the, the the twist at the end i thought was pretty brilliant and you get it, it it'll, it's alluded in the trailer where Selma blair and nicholas cage are about to like deliver you feel like a fatal blow or something like that and then the doorbell rings and it's like oh were my parents coming over tonight and in the trailer it's played as like oh we're gonna have to cover this up like we just tried to kill our kids our our parents are gonna be terrified what's going on but then they open the door to their parents and right away it hits you wait a minute Nicolas Cage is the kid and then the mom maces him with pepper spray and the dad stabs him with a knife a couple times it was just one of those things where it was like a light bulb like wait a minute they're kids too then there's this whole great fight scene with Nicolas Cage and the dad my favorite shot of the movie was probably when he backs his Trans Am out of the garage and inadvertently hits his mom who's trying to kill him and she like flies over the sunroof and it's in slow motion and you can see her face like like it was just such a silly crafted scene that I maybe not my favorite, but the one I appreciated a lot through that the kids are able to kind of regain control, tie the parents up in the basement and then the parents come to and it's what you said, the final line where they say, and, and this was the interesting part too. They're crying, they're weeping, they're sobbing and they're like, we love you. You're, we love you so much. You're the center of our worlds. We, we would do anything for you. And then Nicolas Cage says, but Sometimes we just want to and then cut to credits. And I thought right. that was that was a really brilliant execution. If you're going to make a movie about that subject, that was a really pointed, really like sort of stick it to you, brick to the forehead ending, I thought. Yeah. And it also doesn't it kind of doesn't like really tell you what to think. What I liked about the grandparents coming over is in any other movie in any other kind of studio world that would have been the sequel. Like it's always like going one other level would be the sequel where in this one it's like, no, 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 we're going to throw this at the end. And the other thing that I really liked about it's almost like a chase scene with Nicolas Cage going after his son and they're diving through the Trans Am windows and Nicolas Cage is like, rah, you know, doing his Nicolas Cageous. And as soon as Lance Hendricks comes, Hendrickson? Henrik, Henrik, it's Henrickson. And I only know that because he was the bad guy in Hard Target, which is an amazing film. I feel bad. I met him. <laughs> Oh, man. Wow. You're a, at, you're, what a what a dick. <laughs> no, I was at uh, the world premiere of Monday at 11.01 a.m., which was kind of like a low budget lead actor and it paid for the movie to happen. But yeah, it, he was he was in the movie. And so I sat behind him at the movie theater and <laughs> met him at the end. So I feel bad for brain farting on his name. But so Nicolas Cage is going after his son and Lance comes up behind him and just starts stabbing him in the back of the thigh. And then Nicolas Cage becomes like a wounded animal and he's like, you know, and he just keeps crawling through. And 
I was like, I don't think I've ever seen a movie where like the horror villain that we've been watching the entire time starts getting attacked by a bigger horror villain. And you see him both viciously attacking something else and at the same time getting wounded like an animal from somewhere. Like it's just there's an underlying theme of should you trust your parents implicitly, you know, and you kind of and you want to you want to trust them at the very end of this when they're tied to the pole and they're being like, oh, guys, we're so happy you're okay. You can untie us now. And you kind of as you're watching it being like, "Uh, no, you know, like, don't don't untie them. But maybe untie like it would be great if this had a happy ending. So go, you know, maybe untie it, you know, like you you don't know which way you want to go. And so then they just cut it. I love you, Dad. Oh, sweetie. I love you, Mom. Me too. Don't you know? We love you both more than anything in the whole world. But sometimes we... Sometimes we just want to... And go, there you go. There was the movie. On one hand, you could see that as lazy, like, you know, we don't want to put a definitive stamp on it. But on the other hand, like, that's the kind of ending that, like you said, makes you think, like, are they going to untie them? Are the parents bullshitting? Are the parents, like, has the frequency evolved to the point where, like, the parents aren't just crazy rage monsters, like, where they have some sentience and some thought and they can come up with these clever ruses? That was the perfect way to end this movie, I think, was just cutting it where they did and then just sort of leaving it up to the imagination like what happens next because of the skill throughout the movie like i feel like that is a definitive choice like everything was a definitive choice i think dr oz being the the science expert because we knew even before even before covid in 2018 we knew that he was a snake oil salesman i feel like everything about this movie was a choice and even if it was if it wasn't a hollywood standard of explaining everything in perfect detail so the audience understands what is going on i think the writer director brian taylor i think he had to fight for that choice to remain to be subtle about it to a pretty little bow at the end one of the things i was going to say is a good movie to me is a movie where you can't imagine the main character being played by anyone else and it's funny because the movie The Wrestler was originally supposed to star Nicolas Cage and he dropped out of it and the lead role was given to Mickey Rourke obviously and that's a movie where like I couldn't imagine Nicolas Cage in that role because that was like that was Mickey Rourke's movie there was nobody else who could have done it better I felt the same way about this movie with Nicolas Cage and with Selma Blair like I couldn't imagine like I couldn't imagine Bruce Willis in this movie playing it the same way I couldn't imagine Reese Witherspoon on the other side or whatever like the ridiculousness and the tone that they added to the movie i thought was like just just a perfect blend i absolutely agree i have actually three good reviews for this movie but i'll leave it up to you but i got a chuck bowen at slant which i think is a magazine dennis harvey at variety magazine or simon abrams at RogerEbert.com because unfortunately this movie came out after roger ebert passed so we can't get his view on it the variety guy All right. Dennis Harvey at Variety Magazine said, we 
love you, but sometimes we just want to kill you, is a thought that crosses nearly every frazzled parent's mind sooner or later. That figurative sentiment is taken all too literally in Mom and Dad, which finds the gonzo sensibility that writer-director Brian Taylor applied most usefully to the crank action movies working at least as well in comedic horror. Though sure to be distasteful for some viewers even to ponder, the skitty exercise transcends mere bad taste humor to become one of the great jet black comedies about suburbia destined for the same cult classic status accorded the Stepford Wives, Parents, and Heathers. Couching its social critiques of shallow materialism, casual racism, and other privileged woes in breakneck action and merciless slapstick, Mom and Dad is a gas. Taylor and his terrific tech design collaborators avoid wearing out the joke with just enough spry variation in tone and pace, alleviating the frequently frenetic content which stretches of ironic lyricism and even poignancy. Credit for that should be fully shared with DP Daniel Pearl, editors Rose Core and Fernando Bellana, composer Mr. Bill, and music supervisor Ryan Gaines, all of whom knock it out of the park. The juvenile actors play it straight, with skill. The adults get the more interesting task of conveying various balances of cartoon and genuine menace. An unlikely star from the start, whose shaky choices of late have imperiled that status, Cage has always been at his best in precisely this zone of monotony comic invention that you see him doing variations here on what he's done before doesn't lessen the performance's unpredictable inspired hilarity blair on the other hand feels somehow underappreciated even if she's hardly been underemployed she covers a gamut from bittersweet sympathy to farce to monstrousness running amok like a cat on piano keys yet hitting each note perfectly mom and dad isn't the kind of movie they give acting awards to but in a just world it would be the kid actors in this movie, nothing against them, but their characters, the son and the daughter, were the least interesting to me. The girl's boyfriend, and I think that's probably where the casual racism comes in. There were some like, you know, casual hints that Nicolas Cage didn't like him because uh, he was black and she was his daughter. And, and then he, he tried, he like covered it up by saying, I don't like him because he's a junior and you're a sophomore. Hey, uh, can I go to a movie with Riley tonight? With Riley? Shut up. Since when does anyone under 30 go to the movies? Sweetheart, you're not seeing that boy. Well, he has a name, and I know why you don't want me to see him. Yeah, because he's a junior and you're a sophomore. Listen, I used to be a 17-year-old dude once, so I think Gross. I know... Gross! Gross? Honey, but right. there, there were definitely implications there. But his character was, to me, infinitely more interesting than the actual two kids because he, first of all, he comes home to his dad, who you're led to believe is abusive and alcoholic and stuff like that. His dad attacks him. His dad ends up tripping over the table and stabbing himself in the neck. He just sees his dad die. Like what the fuck? Then he goes over to try and help the kids, and Nicholas Cage ends up. They they have a a, a really interestingly good fight where Nicolas Cage knocks him out and then there's this explosion at the end of the movie where he gets woken up and sort of ends up surviving through the whole thing. But if you think of the movie from his perspective, like I don't remember him ever getting kind of even close to an explanation of what the fuck was actually happening. He's just sort of moving forward on this instinctual level to try and save his girlfriend and, you know, her brother. And he doesn't know what the hell is going on. That type of character, I feel like you don't see that often. And I think it was it was pretty well done. And it made for like it was one of those things where you just kind of felt for him. Like somebody tell this guy what's going on because he just keeps getting his ass kicked and he keeps getting closer to being killed and he doesn't know why he deserves to know why 
So Mom and Dad, not the movie I was expecting. Again, a movie that I would need to probably psych myself up to watch again, but a movie that I was certainly entertained by, if not put on edge and a little bit catered to my anxiety quite a bit. Definitely a movie that, like the reviewer said, puts each character in a situation and sets them up for just dramatic success. It's hit or miss. It it definitely hit for me. And when I recommended it, I think I recommended it to you. And then probably like the next two texts was like five other movies. I was like, if you're not feeling that one, though, we could totally do this and this and this and this. And that. you know, like, it's just one of those like, ah, you know, I don't know how you're going to take it, but I super liked it. And I think you're the first person that I convinced to watch it because of the show. And I'm hoping because of the show, more people go on their Hulu and just sit back for it's a real short movie. It's I think 86 minutes. Yeah, it was only like an hour and a half long. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I told my wife that we were going to be recording tonight and she said, oh, what movie? And I said, you might not have heard of it. It's called Mom and Dad. It's it's Nicolas Cage. And he plays a dad who's been somehow mysteriously like entranced to kill his kids. And the first thing she said was like, oh, my God, how bad was that? And that's probably going to be the general reaction from anybody who hears the plot in those terms. But my answer to her was like, it was so unsettlingly entertaining, I think is the way I would describe it. So yeah, I like it. There there we go. We did it. Mom and dad on second chance cinema. You could check it out on Hulu. We're going to end here with uh, some bumpers giving us or giving you the social media contact info. You need to follow us. If you want to recommend movies, tell us we suck. Tell us you agree with what we said. Tell us that there's no way in hell you're ever uh, trusting our recommendations again. Or tell us that you love us, but sometimes you just want to. Mom and Dad is produced by Armory Films, XYZ Films, and The Fizz Facility. It was distributed by Momentum Pictures. Second Chance Cinema is a fan of the film and urges you to check it out, now streaming on Hulu. The Happening is produced and distributed by 20th Century Fox. Closing credits music is from the soundtrack by Mr. Bill. Thank you for listening to this episode of Second Chance Cinema. If you have any comments, questions, corrections, or would like to recommend a movie for a future show, you can reach us at secondchancecinema at gmail.com. That's 2ndchancecinema at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at MCNSpro, or check us out on Instagram at 2ndchancecinema. To help our little show out, please tell your friends about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and be sure to subscribe and download each episode you listen to as those simple steps makes us much more visible in the universe, which makes these fine secret cinematic masterpieces more visible. And isn't that really the whole point? Now go on. Have a wonderful day, you beautiful person, you. And if your television goes to static, kill your nearest family member just to be safe.